0: Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, that truth might be accused by false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. That was Augustine of Hippo reflecting on the miracle of the incarnation. Stories matter. Events matter. Every one of our cultures, every one of our nations looks backwards. Whatever has happened in the past has shaped all of us in the present, whether it's our nations, our cultures, who we are as people. Each of us as individuals are shaped by stories. On this Christmas Eve morning, what stories and events in your own life Have shaped you. Now, for Christians, God the Son taking on flesh is not just a sentimental story, it's an event, a reality that has changed everything about how we understand ourselves, even the privileges we understand that we have right now. J.I. Packer writes, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. If you're to believe and take the scriptures on their own terms, you are to believe that God's eternal son took on flesh. That he came into this ruined world of sinners and he did in this world what no other person out of the billions of people who have ever lived could. The more you think about that fact, the eternally begotten Son of God taking on flesh, the more staggering it gets. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul writes about how shockingly free God's gospel is. He reflects in this letter on the work of the Son of God and the unthinkable privileges that has secured for all who trust in him, making slaves into sons. And we're going to think about that this morning from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Galatians 4, 4 through 7. In this text, we're not reading the story of Jesus' birth we are reading about the theological significance of his birth. And if this is true, and it is, nothing is as fantastic as what we read here. Galatians 4, 4-7. to But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, Before this verse, Paul has been teaching about heirs and children and slaves. So before God's own son came into the world, God's people were heirs. They knew great promises, but they had not been given their full inheritance. They were like the prince of a country growing up who did have great status, but they were spiritually waiting under guardians until the fullness of time when it would all be theirs. Now, for the Jewish people, that meant they had lived under the law, which had the power to condemn them, but not to save them. For Gentiles, they were living under their own kind of law. If you look back at verse 3, that's the elementary principles of false gods in nature. And that enslaved them. So Paul is not giving us the details of the circumstances of Jesus' birth, the shepherds and the angels, the wise men. It's not the what. It's the why. The full significance of what God the Son's incarnation meant. Because this event would forever shape the way in which God's people would understand ourselves. And here's Paul's main point. God has given his son to make us sons. God has given his son to make us sons and to give us unthinkable privileges. God gave his son to make us sons and give us unthinkable privileges. We're going to think on four points this morning. So you if you do take notes, you can write Jesus came, Jesus came Number one, at the right time. At the right time. Number two, under the right conditions. Under the right conditions. And number three, for the right kind of people. For the right kind of people. The fourth point will be a mystery until we get there. And then revealed At the right time, under the right conditions, for the right kind of people. Jesus came at the right time. The very first part of verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, or if you read from the NIV, when the set time had come. How many of the children have felt like Christmas Day would never get here? Any? You know, it still may not. I'm just kidding. It can feel like time slows down, depending on your perspective at Christmas. Uh, Maybe you're sitting there, kids, this morning, and it just feels like it will never get here. I remember Christmas Eve as a child. It was the longest night of my entire life. Felt like it would go on forever. I look back on our year. How long ago does January feel? How long ago when the school year started? How long ago does the UAE heat feel from this moment? What we would give for time to stand still for this weather? From our vantage point, time can feel as if it moves slowly. And Paul is saying that God has a different vantage point on time itself altogether. When the fullness of time had come, it was the time God set. Now think of that. The rise and fall of Empires, births, and deaths of significant peoples. There were major wars and moments. There were minor people and events, obscure people born and died, lost to history, but known to God, each of their times in God's hand. And God had been for centuries moving human history to this time for the incarnation of God, the Son. He moved the world to the age when his people, who were like miners waiting for an inheritance, was ending. So the fullness of time means time is God's creation. Full of meaning. The time had to be right for the mysterious entry of God's Son into the world. And God moved every moment of time To the right time, for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, for the gospel to go forward. So man had all kinds of intentions for time, but God's purposes in time were prevailing. Time, as God's creation, means that the times are never spiraling out of control. The times in which we live right now are in the very hands of God. Jesus came at the right time, in the fullness of time. God did what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. The incarnation means we always live in God's time. That God, not man, will accomplish his purposes. So from beginning to end, yes, time will come to an end. In the middle of time, when very few in the world even noticed it, God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. Now, I'm tempted to ask you how you are using your time. But it's not really your time. How are you using the time God is graciously giving you in his world? We're at the end of another year. As you look back, how have you spent time God has given to you this last year? Do, would you say you've, you've spent time in a way that would reveal that you think this world is all there is? I hope you're honest about that. As you look ahead, be intentional about the ways you will spend time in the year That's coming. Your time and my time is limited. What might be one or two ways looking forward? You might spend time for the sake of God's eternal glory better moving forward. Could you change your social media habits? Be real about that. What's something you know that you're in the habit of doing? that you know is a time waster, that you know you could better spend that time for the sake of eternity. One day, time itself will run out of time. What will you have done with the time God gave you? Eternity draws near. This text should cause us all to think about how God is using time In all of the time before God the Son came into the world and all the rebellion against Him, all of the sin, God was working to send forth His Son. Not one moment of time in which God was not at work to send forth His Son to be born, which means God was using all of time to put on display astonishing grace. God never wastes one moment of time, not in the world, not in your life. Uh, This phrase, fullness of time, means that there were ways in which God had been working for centuries that would have never made sense to those who were walking through them at that time. The times of their life weren't random. The times of your life aren't random. I think one way that this phrase, the fullness of time, should teach us as Christians is that we should be intentional with our time. We should make concrete plans to use time in view of eternity. I would pray that as a body, we would grow in using time for the good of each other, disciple each other, to help each other follow Jesus in this wicked world, to set aside time to build into to build up this body. We live in a strange world. The world knows that time will not go on forever. But the world lives as if time will. The world lives as if time will not be subjected to God's evaluation of it. And I wonder if the world's thinking about time has slowly crept into yours. Yours. The world did not discern that the time had reached its fullness when God's son was born into the world. God did. God was unfolding his purposes and plans according to the right time. Time like money is limited and a resource to be used for his glory. The incarnation means the times of your life, are not random, that the one who sent his own son in the fullness of time is not wasting time with you. Jesus came at the right time. He does all things well in his own time when the fullness of time had come. Number two, Jesus came under the right conditions. The second part of verse four, under the right conditions. Paul says this very simply God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. That is a staggering sentence. God's eternal son placed himself in circumstances under obligations that shocked angels. What does this world? that is so characterized by crisis and conflict, uncertainty, unbelief, goodness, and evil. What does this world most need? God's own son to come into it. And God sent his son. And he did so in a particular way, under the right conditions. Now, of course, the son did not have to come at all. And even in coming, he could have come in glory with thousands of angels to bring judgment. But God's plan from all eternity was decidedly otherwise. When he sent his eternally preexistent, only begotten son into the world, think about this. He did not come in an extraordinary ceremony, but into a very ordinary family in an obscure village, in an ordinary way. There's not one ruler on the planet who goes even to another country like that. Ceremonies attend to their arrivals. And Paul simply says he was born of a woman. It's what the scriptures teach. The very unsuspecting Mary gave birth to a child supernaturally as a virgin. The virgin birth was essential to his work as Savior for apart from that, he would have been born under our father, Adam. He would have inherited the same sin nature that we have. It's the miracle of the virgin birth that ensures he comes into the world as the second man, the last Adam. He does not stand in Adam's line condemned but he's the head of a new humanity with the power to save. But the virgin birth is not Paul's emphasis here. It's his human birth that Paul is emphasizing when he says, born of a woman. Can't you just hear Genesis 3.15 echoing? I will put enmity between you and the woman. he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, and here he is, a human being who's come into our race, who can actually save our race. Now, the right conditions meant he had to be truly human. Uh, The early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, wrote, that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. So to redeem humanity, he had to take on flesh. When he came into the world, he hid the glory that was hid. He took on flesh. It's not an obscure doctrine in the scriptures. It's central to the scriptures because it's fundamental to our salvation. He had to come under the condition of being like us. That which he has not assumed, he cannot heal. But he wasn't just born of a woman, he was born under the law. Uh, That's a phrase that's used five times in this letter to the Galatians, twice in these two verses. This phrase means that you're under the dominion, tyranny of sin. To be under the law is to objectively seek to be justified, declared righteous before God through works of the law. It's subjectively in Galatians to try to obtain the spirit by obeying the law. Now, the gospel writer Luke makes very clear how under the law Jesus was in his own life. We read in Luke 2, verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised. And in the very next verse, Luke writes, And when time came for the purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. So the very law that was about him Pointed to him, he was born under. Like no one, he demonstrated what a law-shaped life looked like. He revealed the meaning of the law. He was the law's goal. He was the law's end. And for salvation, he obligated himself to this law. Now, when you think about those who seek to keep religious requirements, or perform religious rituals, or observe fast, it's very easy to admire that commitment. It's also easy to think they have a really high view of salvation. And if you're thinking of salvation from the standpoint of human effort or discipline, then sure, such consistency does require tremendous effort and discipline, over a very long period of time. But from Scripture's vantage point, those who seek to obtain their salvation through obeying the law or observing any kind of works, the Scripture would say you have not too high a view of salvation, but one that is, no matter how much effort you give to it, too low. Because anyone who believes that by law-keeping, by staying on the right path, by doing good deeds, performing prayers. Anyone that believes that salvation is something they can achieve, that it's something that they can earn as a reward, thinks of salvation as too low. For scripture reveals that no matter how much good we do, how many religious observances that we keep. That's not just to reject what God has done in Christ, but it is to think of salvation as something infinitely too small. The scriptures, they upend, they confront the way that we naturally think about salvation. Salvation, if it's to be achieved, is not something we can accomplish. It's only something God can accomplish. And so God's son was born under the law. Sinless, he placed himself under the requirements of the law to save those who were under the tyranny of the law, to save those who were under the condemnation of the law. Paul is saying that the law, to look to the law, to obtain salvation is to make yourself a slave. To obey the law because Christ has saved you by faith is what it means to live in freedom. In the fullness of time, the Son was born of a woman, born under the law that we might be freed. The incarnation means Jesus came under the right conditions. Now for you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, has this miracle, the wonder of God's Son taking on humanity, grown dull to you. We live in a place where this central assertion of the Christian faith is not believed by the vast majority of the people that live here. We live in a world that hears about this and yawns. Now think about that. What that means that God's own son has come into the world and it's either disbelieved or it's something that created human beings cannot be bothered to think about at any length and to sit in wonder. What does that say about us as a human race? What does that say about our world? But that's just it. The reality of the incarnation The reality that God the Son took on flesh is unbelievable, except God has clearly revealed it. For God to accomplish a just salvation, he can never act by his will in a way that will violate his nature. He cannot be arbitrary. So, as the God who is good and who is just, he cannot give us salvation. That is not good and just. And so sending the son to fulfill all of the law's requirements, God accomplishes a good and just salvation. And This salvation proves to the world that God himself is better, more holy, more good than we can fathom. This fact that God would become man should cause your mind to soar about who God really is. In himself, it should cause you to think massive thoughts about your salvation. In Jesus Christ, you possess something that is so great, only God could achieve it. Michael Reeves said this so well, the incarnation is an almighty no. To all works, righteousness. Now imagine you have a disease that's terrible. You know nothing about it, you don't even know you have it. Some would say ignorance is bliss, but the disease will kill you. And the only way you will be healed is through the success of doctors and researchers right now, somewhere, some way, doing the work that you're totally unaware of to come up with a cure that you don't even know that you need. Now, that analogy breaks down because it's comparing what God has done in Christ to sinful human beings. We, as a human race, under the law, have been infected with sin, and we have needed desperately the God who is to act And we're totally unaware of this. Only until the other side of salvation, this is exactly what God has done in his plan and his purpose and he's worked out his plans from eternity past in the fullness of time. Let this fact that God the son was born under the right conditions of woman under the law astonish you at the goodness of God who would go to such lengths to accomplish a salvation We do not deserve. I hope that this Christmas you would remove all sentimental thoughts about the birth of Jesus and replace them with very realistic, great thoughts about what God has done to save, about his unimaginable goodness and love, of his commitment to save a people. This is a salvation that meets every need we have. Not only that we did not have the wisdom to understand, but also would have never had the right to demand. God has given the son and the son has freely come as a human born alongside us, but without sin under the law. He has come under the right conditions. And Jesus has come for the right kind of people. That's the third point, the right kind of people. Verse five, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He did not come for the right people because we were the most deserving, but because as those born under the law, we were the most desperately ones needing to be saved. So think of hostages in total bondage, waiting somewhere to be rescued, And an elite military unit, and all of their planning, going in to rescue them. They land in the darkness of night. They rush into a building. They risk their lives. And when they get there, they realize they found the wrong people. Jesus came and found the right people. Those who are hostages, under the tyranny of law, born under the mastery of sin. Those who have no illusion about the fact that we cannot save ourselves. How did he redeem those under the law? He obeyed the law perfectly. Now be aware of this. In God's universe, there is a very real moral law to which every human being is accountable. Just like there's laws in this country right now to which we're all accountable, whether we know those laws exist or not. And God's son fulfilled all the righteous requirements of that law And then took the penalty of him on himself for those who have failed to fulfill that law. He did this in his death on the cross. The incarnation of the Son cannot be in any way separated from his terrible crucifixion on the cross. The Son was born to die, to suffer the curse that we deserve in his body on the tree. Death could not hold the Son, he was raised for salvation. He has accomplished it. He's come for the right people, those who know they've done everything terribly wrong. It's Christmas Eve. Very well aware that uh, maybe some of you have come because going to church on Christmas seems like a good thing to do. Very happy if you're here. I would hope you would engage with what we've sung, with what's being preached. A Christmas is more than about vague spirituality, sentimentality. It is about more than doing a religious duty. You know, the God who is everlasting and who reigns, who has life in himself, he doesn't need any human being to do anything to make him feel good. Christmas is about something that is too good to be true, except it's true that you and I are far worse off than we would ever imagine ourselves to be. We're sold as slaves into sin and that God who knows us better than we know ourselves has done something better than we would have ever imagined. He has seen us as we are in our state and rescued us with a full salvation. The good news of Christmas really is you don't have to work your way to God. In Jesus, God has done all the works and paid all of the penalty for every sin you've committed against him. My prayer for you this Christmas is you would receive this gift, for you cannot earn it, that you would sweetly repent even of the efforts you've made to make yourself right with God, and you would just simply come to Jesus in faith and trust him for what he's come to give, which he alone can give, and find life in his name. It's exactly those who know they're far off, who know how bad they are, who see their lives and realize we've made a mess of it, who are the right kind of people for Jesus. Is there any other king in the world of which you could say that about them? When's the last time you marveled that in Jesus God has given righteousness simply as a gift that he delights to give righteousness, not by those who slave away and work, but by simply believing in his son. If you understand who God is really is in himself, in his being, in his perfections in his eternity, what I've just said should blow you away. Kids, whatever you get tomorrow, Whatever you hope you get tomorrow, I promise you, the gift of salvation in Christ by faith alone, by grace alone, is better than anything you could ever imagine. And think of this. In coming, Jesus didn't simply free us. He raised us from our pitiful state as slaves, and he made us sons What Paul writes here would have shocked any one of the original readers because in the Roman world, boy was ordinarily adopted when he had grown up, when he had proven himself in some way to be worthy. And he was adopted most likely to be designated as an heir to someone who did not have a son. And in Jesus, the gospel says, Jesus came to redeem those who were unworthy, under the law. And think of this, when he saved us, he could have simply justified us. He could have simply said, you're innocent. That would have been a remarkable gift because we are truly guilty before God. But he did more than that. He adopted us. He made us sons. He brought us into God's family such that now you have full standing and access before God's throne because of the sun. Now, if you probably live here long enough, at least, you know what it's like to show up at the airport and to get on an airplane and to realize that there's a number of people that have a lot of status with airlines. They sit in the fancy seats. They get special treatment. But if you fail to fly you lose that status immediately. In this world, status, perks, privileges, it's as fleeting as the failure to buy an airplane ticket. But in Jesus Christ, status, standing, privilege last forever. And it's been given freely to those who it would otherwise be unthinkable for. More than any status you could attain in this world, Christ Jesus has so worked to give you the most privileged status in the universe. In Christ, you are sons, and God the Father looks on you, Christian, as a son. There is no orphan who can force their way into a family. They must be rescued and freely spiritually. God has made us family in Christ. Jesus has made us sons. He has given us his standing before God the Father. The fact that we are sons means that God is so for us that there's nothing in the universe, no power and no person that can stop us from inheriting the new creation. Nothing will stop us from our status being revealed to the entire universe that we are sons of God. And J.I. Packer writes this in his book, Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out not how much he knows this or that, but he thinks and makes of the thought of being God's child of having God as his father, if that's not the thought that prompts and controls his worship, his prayers, his outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Whether you think of yourself as high or low, upper, or lower class, if you're trusting in Christ, you are a son of the king of the universe. You have been adopted. You have privileges and standing that if you could see it right now, it would blow you away. Just because you cannot see it doesn't make it any less true. And that's how Paul ends here. The son who came at the right time under the right conditions for the right kind of people has given us unthinkable rights. Jesus came to give us unthinkable rights. That's the final mysterious point that you've been waiting on the edge of your seats for. Let me read verses 6 to 7 again. Unthinkable rights. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Stories and events matter. What happened centuries ago, changes everything about our present. So notice the logic. God's son, his work means we receive adoption as sons. And because your son, God sends forth the spirit into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Look at that sentence. You see each person of the triune God at work. Each person at work to accomplish our salvation God's Spirit sent by God into our hearts because we're united to the Son by faith. Because of this, we now relate to the Father in the distinct way that Jesus relates to the Father as sons. What father in the world who is worth anything does not want his own son to know he's loved, to know he's cherished, I say to my own children when they accomplish something really great or hard or when they fail, I love you because you're my son. I love you because you're my daughter. What they've done will change. Who they are will never change. And sonship in the scriptures is a status. It's a standing in relation to God. Now, women don't overreact. The men are the bride of Christ. We're all doing things a little unnatural to us. Father's gift of the Spirit crying in our hearts, Abba, Father, is the conviction. It's the joy that those who are in Christ know in our inner being, I am His Son. He is my Father. You you cannot possibly make enough, too much of the fact that God has sent His Spirit into your heart. No matter how much you think of it, I am confident for all of us, it should astonish us more than it does. The Father sending His Spirit into our hearts means for you and me as Christians, He wants you to understand He loves you because you're His Son. Not because you did this, not because you did that, but because you're His Son. I am totally convinced that the more that that reality is driven into your soul, the more you will enjoy God, the more you will be freed to live life to his glory in ways that are unthinkable to this world. The more you think and you live to the father relating to you in love because your family, the more you will be empowered to fight sin, not as duty, but as delight and to walk by faith. The father means for you to know he relates to you in love. In Christ, as sons, not slaves. Verse 7. Paul is bringing everything in this passage back to full circle. He had said back in verse 1 that the child under guardianship was waiting for the fullness of their inheritance. But in Christ, no longer slaves, but sons. Status has completely changed. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's doing not yours. In Jesus Christ, you have rights before God that are unthinkable. In Christ, you have the right to inherit the new creation. In Christ, you have the right to ask boldly of the everlasting God who is your Father. In Christ, you have the right to be called a son of God, for this is what you are. And to live in freedom as a son of God. The coming of the son, his living, his dying, his rising changes everything. He has completely changed who we are forever. Did you notice one more thing in all these verses? Who's doing all the giving and who's doing all the receiving? On this Christmas Eve, notice there's not one thing we give to God. He gives everything to us. God sent forth His Son. God in Christ does the work of redemption. God gives us the status of sonship. God does the work to make us heirs and to give us rights that we could never demand of Him. No God like our God in whom salvation is a gift who gives us Status that we could not fathom. What do you have that you have not received? God sent his son in the fullness of time to adopt us as sons. The incarnation happened at the very right time in human history, and it has changed human history changes how we understand our lives. It changes how we understand our destiny, no matter how much of the world thinks this is false. This is the true story of the world. This story changes everything about the world and about your life. I hope as you leave this morning, you will think great thoughts of God and of his son who left Glories we cannot imagine in heaven to be born ingloriously of a woman under the law that he might raise us to be sons, to give us a salvation and to bring us into glory that we could never achieve on our own. And glory is coming because he veiled his glory and he took on flesh. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. O earth, receive your King.